Uh, well, folks, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, the Parsha Eleha de Barin, it's really a good start. I would say that it's probably the, one of the most important part of scripture, believe it or not, lays right here. And why I'm saying this is because in order to understand Yeshua's teachings, we have to understand what Moses is trying to convey in here. Before we get into that, though, I want to recap on all the books that I do every year as we go through the books so that we can have better understanding of what the Father is trying to convey to his people. We saw when we started in the Torah portion, we started with the book of Genesis, which is in the beginning, translates as in the beginning, okay? Then from Genesis, we went to what? Exodus, which is Shemot, which means names. Then from Exodus, we went to Leviticus, which is Vayikra, which means what? To be called out. And then from there, we went to Numbers, which means in the wilderness. And now we finally come to the fifth book, which is Deuteronomy words. And it's amazing that when you put all the books together, the first five books, look at the beautiful story that it gives us. It says that in the beginning, names were called out in the wilderness for the purpose of the words, basically. It's very interesting because the father is in the business of calling people out, but when he calls us out, he's always calling us into the wilderness. And why the wilderness? Well, it, it, this part, it has to do and connects with what we're going to be teaching about today. Why the wilderness? The Father wants to release all the distractions, folks, from our lives. Let's face it, folks. We really can't hear God when we got too many voices around us. You know, and these voices are not just literally somebody saying, hey, hey, hey. These voices can just be simply the affairs of life. When we are too preoccupied with the affairs of life, let, let's face it, folks, God's voice just becomes, you know, lower and lower and lower and lower to the point where we can't, it's a whisper, we can't even hear. And that's why so many people say, well, how is it that you can hear God, but I can't? You know, isn't that what the children of Israel even complain, you know, accuse Moses of? You know, we all hear God, right? But there's a difference, folks. That's why he is calling his people in this time in this season out into the wilderness so that we can what hear his words amen so we're going to start in deuteronomy chapter 1 1 and it's interesting because this this deuteronomy chapter 1 says and these are the words that moses spoke to all israel beyond the jordan in the wilderness and arabah and the opposite of asu between param tofel laban hazerot and dizabah there's a really a point as to why it's mentioning all these names by the way and we're going to get to that in just a minute why is it mentioning all these names? Whenever you see names in the Bible, usually there's a revelation that the Father's trying to reveal. But I like the very opening because it says, these are the words. So let's cover these are the words to begin with. It says, Eleha de barim asher Moshe el kol Israel. Okay, these are the words. Well, we're going to start with the Midrash. Oh, right here, hold on. We're going to start, first of all, with the understanding of the word David, which means to answer, to arrange, to speak, to appoint, to bid essentially to pronounce to rehearse something to talk it even has the uh the the weight and the connotation of teaching so when he says these are the words okay it's not just so you can hear him babble but rather the words that he's going to convey have a meaning and a purpose for israel now i want to put us the setting in here moses is about a few weeks away from dying they're about to enter the land they're in the 40th year they are right there. They can see it across. They can see the land. They're about to enter into the promises. And before they enter, Moses says, well, before we enter, 
I need to convey something to you. Okay, now let's keep in mind that they've been 40 years in the wilderness. So, I mean, what can possibly Moses tell them that they haven't heard already? Think about this for a minute. I mean, just imagine yourself 40 years here in this assembly and I'm repeating the same thing over. What can I possibly say to you at the end of the 40th year that you haven't heard? Well, we're going to see really what this all entails. So the Midrash opens up by saying this. It says, the Talmud refers to Deuteronomy as Mishneh Torah. What is Mishneh Torah? It means like a repetition, right? But the question is, is Moses repeating 40 years worth of teaching all over again? Well, I think to a degree, yes. But look what the Midrash says. It's, it means it's translated as repetition or review of the Torah or an explanation of the Torah. See, we got to understand one thing, folks. When we read the Torah and everybody reads the Torah, anybody can read the Torah. The question is, how do we interpret the Torah? Uh, this is really where all our differences come in, right? Because we all agree we need to be studying Torah. Problem is, the outcome is different for everybody. I mean, from Messianic synagogue to another, it's all different. So, let's see this. He says in here, or rather, the Midrash says in here that this is also known as an explanation of the Torah. Now, the author for the uh, Mishneh Torah is the Ramban. The Ramban actually wrote the book of Mishneh Torah. Mishnah Torah has to do with the book of Deuteronomy, essentially, and it's an amazing book with lots of chapters, and it conveys a lot of wealth, I believe, of information in there. Some stuff that I will, you know, still take with a grain of salt, but there's a lot of a wealth of information concerning this book of Deuteronomy and how to fulfill a lot of these things. So, moving on in here. The entire book was said by Moses to the nation during the last five weeks, according to the Midrash, of his life. In effect, it was the prophet's last will, so to speak, and testament to his beloved people, in which he warned them of potential pitfalls and inspired them to rise to their callings. Now, the question is, what possibly pitfalls can they encounter since they're about to enter the land? They're not entering into the wilderness. They're entering into the promises. What is that the Midrash is trying to teach us also is that even in the promises, folks, there's always going to be strife. There's always going to be pitfalls. There's always going to be adversity. As long as we in this world, there will always be adversity. Even to accomplish the righteous deeds of God, especially if you're trying to accomplish the righteous deeds of God, there will always be adversity. The Hirsch Humash adds to this. It says, Eleha de Barim refers to the entire contents of the fifth book of the Torah. The final chapters of the fourth book contain God's commandments regarding the conquest of the land, whereas the fifth book contains the words that Moses spoke to all the people before parting from them. For thereafter, he would not be one to guide them in the fulfillment of their mission in the land of which they were about to take possession. So Moshe is saying basically, okay, in about a few weeks, guys, I'm retiring. I'm gone. So you're not going to have me to guide you anymore. I want you to keep in mind something. As Moshe is telling this to the people, remember, he's symbolic of the Mashiach, right? It rings a bell also the words that Mashiach spoke to his disciples just before he was about to die. Think about this. 
because now Moshe is about to depart, and the question is, before he departs, he has some words. So let's, let's continue to see what Hirsch has to say in this. The meaning of the place names mentioned here appears to be this. They serve to establish the precise location of this place where Moses ended his lifetime among his people, where the people last saw their leader, essentially, where they heard the words he spoke before his death. Every word of these final orations of our leaders reflect his deep felt attachment to his people and concern for their future welfare. In these orations, it is as though he imparts, now listen to what Hirsch has to say, it's very important in here. It says, he imparts to his people his own spirit to enable them to endure the trials that awaits them. This is really amazing. Rabbi Hershen here is saying that the final words, when he said these are the words, it's essentially Moses saying, I'm going to impart my spirit into you to guide you because of what awaits you in the future. Does that ring a bell? Well, let's look at this. Let's continue in here. All the place names mentioned here allude the sins committed by the people during their wanderings in the wilderness. So all these names that we see right off the bat as they start has to do with the locations that they actually committed, you can say, an abomination against the Lord. To remind them, look, it is possible that Moses and the people gave these names to certain places around the plain where Moshe used the last weeks of his life to reprove his people and to impart to them the words of wisdom and moral instruction. So what basically Hirsch is saying in here is that he's going to remind them, okay, this is where you went wrong in this location, in this location, in this location, and in this location. And by the way, I'm going to impart my spirit in you so that you can be equipped now to overcome. Now remember, he's symbolic. Look what John 14, 26 says. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to your remembrance. What is the purpose that Moshe is saying in here? All these names is for them to remember. And according to Rabbi Hirsch, he is essentially imparting his spirit upon the people. That's what Yeshua did. John 14 is just before he went to the cross, by the way, to die. Look, it says that the, the Holy Spirit will teach you all these things and bring you to remembrance all that I have what? said to you. We can even say that Yeshua in here is somewhat doing or it's symbolic of what Moshe is doing in the opening chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Interesting. Look, John 16, 6 says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. He says, it is to your advantage that I go away. You see, Moshe had to die. Moshe could not take them over any more than Yeshua could have to stay alive here. What is the symbolic of this thing? Because Moshe's death, we see now Joshua taking him into the land. This is a metaphor. Yeshua's death, through his death, we enter into the promised land. See, if Yeshua doesn't die, then there is no atonement, then there's no promised land. This is one of the reasons why Moshe, I really believe, had to die. Because it was the job of Joshua, a.k.a. Yeshua, to take him into the land. Who's going to bring us into the land, folks? Believe it or not, it's not American Airlines. Okay? <laughs> it's not. 
we all think that everybody's trying to aliyah, trying to figure out what the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel are. You got ministries out there doing these things, trying to get us all into Israel. You know what? I'll go when my king returns. If he wants me there now, I'll be there now. But our pursuit should not be necessarily, I want to go and aliyah to Israel right now. We got work to do, folks. And it's not necessarily for us to aliyah to Israel. And here's a side note. If you cannot do it here in the United States of America, you certainly ain't going to do it in Israel. Because if you think that ministering here is hard, you have no idea what you're up against when you go into that land. It is a major spirit of oppression. You will not fulfill your call. So it's got to be one of those things that God is calling you. But anyway, so in here he is saying basically to Jehanan that upon him leaving, the Holy Spirit will be one to lead him. It's kind of like what Rabbi Hirsch says that Moshe was doing. Moshe was saying, basically, I'm going to impart my spirit in you to equip you. What did Yeshua do? He said, through my death, I will equip you. Very, very similar uh, tone in here between Moshe and Yeshua. So, Deuteronomy 1.6. Now, he says that these are the words. So, what are the words that he says in here? It says, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain the law, saying, now, I found this very, very interesting because it says in here that Moses is going to explain the law. Hello, it's 40th year. What do you mean he's going to explain the Torah? What have they been doing for the last 40 years? But look, in Hebrew, this is the way it reads. It says, Be'er et ha-Torah hazot. This is beautiful because it says for the word in here translated for teaching or rather explaining, is be'er. Be'er means to explain, to make clear, to make something clear, but be'er also is the same root word for a well. And what does a well? What does a well do? A well has water. And what does water do? It gives us chayim, life. So he is saying in here that this explanation that he is going to give them regarding the Torah is going to be for the purposes of life, essentially. Now, I don't know about you folks, but I found this, I don't know if you, well, you all read the parasha this morning, right? He says he's going to begin to explain, Be'er this Torah, Torah. But he doesn't go on to list commandment number one, commandment number two, commandment number three, all the way to commandment 613, and by side by side telling you how to do it. How does Moshe explain the Torah is the question. You want to know how, folks? Moshe begins with an account of the history of Israel. You know what that translates into, essentially? Moshe, we can say, was using a parable to teach and how to fulfill the Torah. Because what is a parable? What did Yeshua's parable were all about? Life. Of the parable of the king, the parable of the talents, all these different things. And he uses all these parables that are life, that are, you know, that are connected with life in order to make a point. What is Moses doing in here? He's not saying commandment number one, love your neighbor as yourself, and this is how you do it. Commandment number three, keep the Sabbath, and this is, he doesn't say that. Instead, he goes on to the history of Israel. Folks, if we w I want to present a question to you today. Do you want to observe Torah or do you want to fulfill Torah? There's a difference. 
Big difference. Don't call me a Torah observant. Anybody can be a Torah observant. Israel to this point in the 40th year was a Torah observant nation. But they weren't fulfilling Torah. Now we're going to make this connection with Yeshua's teaching to understand it. Remember, this is a kind of carried on from last week's teaching. Are we Torah observant or we fulfill Torah? Well, let's see if the teaching convicts you. What is, where do you fall on that? And we'll, we'll, we'll define what is the difference between an observant of Torah and a one who fulfills the Torah. Look, Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. That word for fulfill is the, is the Greek word pleiru, which means to make, to replete. Replete means to fill something, right? To cram, to hollow, to furnish something, right? Now remember, why do I present this in here? It's because Rabino Moshe, Moses said that he is going to explain the Torah. Yeshua said, I have not come to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill the Torah. So what is this connection with the word that Moshe used in the Greek? Let's see. And Andrew Gabriel Ra, which is an Aramaic uh, scholar who is a Jew, has this to say. The word fulfill is derived from the Aramaic demala. Hebrew malay or the Greek pleroma. Uh, it means to fill, to full, accomplish, to carry out, or to bring to a realization. This is basically what Moshe is saying now. Let me ask you a question. How do we explain the Torah? The Torah can only be explained through a realization. How is it that we can phantom a realization a realization comes through experiences of life that you and i can actually understand that we can connect look to perform or to do as in a person's duty or to obey or follow the commandments so right off the bat we are understanding that yeshua's mission out of his own mouth he's not coming to delete the torah or to go away with the Torah, as many teach today, but rather he is coming to do exactly what Rabino Moshe said, which is to explain the Torah. Now let's continue in here. In Yesodei HaTorah, chapter 9, verse 2, Yesodei HaTorah is from the book of the Rambang of Mishneh HaTorah. This is the book of Deuteronomy. This is the second telling or the explanation, the Ramban actually has something very interesting that caught my attention when I was reading it. It says in here, if so, what is meant by the Torah statement in Deuteronomy 18.18 when it says, I will appoint a prophet from among their brethren like you and I. The Ramban, Maimonides, says this. They present in here this prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18.18 that the Lord say, I'm going to raise a prophet like you and I, he says. So let's continue what the, the, uh, the Ramban has to say. I will place my words in his mouth and he will speak. Now listen to what the Ramban says. It's very interesting. He is not coming to establish a new faith. This is very interesting. The Ramban writing this and saying that this prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18, connecting it with Deuteronomy chapter 1, when Moshe is explaining the Torah, the Ramban is connecting this Moshe to Deuteronomy 18, to the prophet 
who is going to come in the future. You getting what I'm going with this? So the prophet in the future, he says, he is not coming to establish a new faith, but rather to command the people, listen to this, to fulfill the precepts of the Torah and to warn against the transgression. I want to pause there for a minute because according to the Ramban, the Mashiach, the one who's coming according to Moshe, which we're reading in here, he is coming to teach the people to fulfill the Torah. But Yeshua said, I have come to fulfill the Torah. That's the whole point, folks. What it means to fulfill. How do we fulfill the Torah? And we're going to address that in just a minute because that's what the Mashiach came from. He came for, to teach his people not to observe the Torah. He doesn't say, I have come so that you can observe Torah. He said, I have come to fulfill the Torah. Guess what? Rabinu Paul, Rav Shaul says that we are to imitate the Messiah. True? Not making words up. Okay, so if we are to, let's test the word of God. If we are to imitate the Mashiach, by the way, that imitation is discipleship in Jewish thought. If we are to imitate the Mashiach and the Mashiach came to fulfill the law, then we need to learn to be fulfillers of the law, not observance of the law. That's the difference. And I'll get to that in just a minute. So look, it says in here, he commanded the people to fulfill the precepts of the Torah. They won against transgression as evidenced by the final prophet, he says, according to Malachi, who proclaim in Malachi 3.22, remember the Torah of Moses, your servant, or my servant, brother. Because Malachi 3.22 talks about the Mashiach. It says that when all these things happen, yes, we got the Messiah. He says, one thing, remember the law of Moses. This is huge, folks, because through the uh, Rabino Moshe, we are now understanding what the function of the Messiah of Israel is. And one of them is not to start a new faith. I'm going to repeat that again. It's not to start a new faith. But what do we have out there today? <laughs> Completely opposite. We have lots of faith today. But he said he didn't come to establish a new faith. So where are we getting this new faith from? Good question for another teaching another day. So look, Isaiah 42, 21 says this. Hashem is well pleased for his righteousness sake. Coming in agreement with what we just read from uh, the Rambang. He will what? Magnify the law and make it honorable. Do you know that this Hebrew word for magnify is the Hebrew word for gadol? Gadol means something that's really, really big. But really, in the root word of gadol means to give it honor. That's why it says in here, honorable. Because gadol, how do you make something big? In Jewish thought, to make something big is something honorable. That's why you have the talit gadol. The talit gadol, it's given to people, you know, with esteem. You know, it's not just for anybody. It's for somebody who, who is honorable. That's the idea of the law. Let me ask you a are we magnifying the law? Are we making the law honorable? Or are we essentially abolishing the law? It's a good question. Look. Isaiah 8.20 To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, what did Moshe speak when he was in Mount Horeb? 
What the, what the, the, what was the words that he was speaking, not just in heart, but just about to enter into the promised land? What did he speak? He spoke the Torah of Hashem. What is the last prophet supposed to do? Speak the words of Hashem. That's why it says in here, if that to the law and to the and the testimony, if they don't speak according to this word, it is because there is no what light in them. Wow. He said it, not me. That shares a lot of light today because how many people today are actually giving honor to the law of God? According to Isaiah, these people have no light in them. But yet we treat them like they're the best thing since sliced bread. Something that we need to care for, what we give in honor to, folks. Nothing wrong with giving honor. We're supposed to give honor to people. So it's actually Torah. But make sure that whoever you give in honor is well-deserving of honor and not a false prophet. So most, now it goes on to say Moses undertook to explain this law saying. What is this word in here Moses undertook? It's actually the Hebrew word holy. And that word for holy actually carries the understanding of ho'alana in Hebrew, which means to be willing. It actually also has the understanding of tearing all night, like speaking all night and be willing. Moshe essentially was willing to take the time to speak to all Israel and explaining this Torah. So now we're going to understand what is it that he is talking. In holy Moshe, again, it means to be willing. Moses had a willingness. To want to explain this to the people. And the same willingness, Holy Moshe, I believe we need to carry that same, that same willingness. To want to be able to reach out to the people. He didn't do it with this contempt. It doesn't indicate in here that he was like, oh, I'm so tired. 40 years of talking about Torah, no more. He was willing, he carried himself all night to be able to explain to the people this Torah. So look. Again, the Ramban in Yesterday HaTorah 9.1, chapter 9.1, the Ramban says this, very interesting. He says, therefore, if a person will arise, he says, whether a Jew or a Gentile, and perform a sign and a wonder, and say that God sent him to, now that he gives you the list, he just performed a sign and a wonder. He just turned a cat into a dog, right before your eyes. Woo! Make your head spin. Okay, maybe even bring a little bit of fire down from heaven to you. Okay, look what he said. If this person comes and does the sign and wonder and says that God sent him, how many times we meet people out there and says, you know what, the Lord sent me. That's a very popular word. The Lord sent me a statement. Actually, the Lord sent me to say this to you. All the Lord said to me to say this to you. We got them out here. They're in Shola, folks. Tons of them. Parking lot prophets, they're out there. So, if he sends them to add a mitzvah, meaning add a commandment, B, do away with a commandment, C, explain a commandment in a matter in which it differs from the traditions received by Moses, D, if he says that the commandment, uh, I'm sorry, if he says that the mitzvah commanded to the Jews, are uh, not forever, but rather were given only into a certain time. Does any of those sound familiar? Look what he says. Said that Let's see what the Ramban says. After that, it says in here, he is a what? 
a false. This is the reason why the Jews don't receive Jesus, by the way. You want to know why? I'll just show it to you. I'm going to read it to you again. Because according to the Jesus today, he either added a commandment, or he definitely did away with a commandment, or he definitely explained something that's contrary to what it was given to Moses, meaning the way he's explaining it is completely off, or if he's saying that the commandments were only good up to a certain point, meaning into my death. Now everything changes. What does he say? He's a false prophet. So if you want to know what you're wrestling against, here's proof of it. This is what you're wrestling against. You're wrestling against a different identity of Messiah. This is the reason why they don't receive him. And I don't blame him, to tell you the truth. I don't blame him one bit. Because the reality is you're supposed to discern. So it says in here, he is a false prophet. He comes to deny the prophecy of Moses. How well does Moses go today in most congregations out there? Think about it. Not very well. As a matter of fact, it's a word that actually has the connotation of acid when we hear about it. We're like, we don't want that. But it's something that we need to check our hearts with. Look, it says in here, he comes to deny the prophecy of Moses and should be executed by strangulation because he dared to make statements in God's name which God never made. Now, what's interesting of what the Ramban has to say in here is that when we go back to the gospel accounts, according to the gospel accounts, they could not find any fault with Yeshua. You know what that means? He did not come to do away with the law. He did not come to add a law. He did not come to explain the law that was completely different from Moses. And he definitely didn't come to teach that the law was only applicable at a certain time. Otherwise, we would have been reading in the gospel, they found fault with him. But they didn't find no fault with him. As a matter of fact, they made up an illegal trial to convict him. It took that much to convict because they couldn't find any fault with him. That means that according to the Ramban, according to the Jewish law itself, Yeshua himself is not a false prophet. The real Yeshua is not a false prophet. According to the Ramban and according to scriptures, both. Yeshua qualifies as the Messiah of Israel because he came exactly as the prophet according to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Amen? Look, Ramban comes out and saying, Moses wanted the people to understand the importance of heeding his words and not relying on their own righteousness. Get what I'm saying in here. They, <laughs> this is huge. It says in here, he didn't want them to be heeding to the words on their own, but rather to and not to rely on their own righteousness to guarantee their future success. In other words, if we're not heeding to the words of Moshe, and we're going to get that in just a minute, how did he explain it? If we're not heeding to the words of Moshe, folks, then we are basically relying on our own righteousness. This is what Apostle Paul talks about in his letters and not relying in your own righteousness. He's not talking about the law of God. He's talking about contrary. Not following the law of God means you're relying on your own righteousness. Kind of like what Ramban in here says, Nachmanides. Nachmanides says in here that the words that he was giving them, it was for the purposes of them actually having a guy so they don't have to depend on their own righteousness. Let's put it this way, folks. If God said keep the Sabbath, but we say, no, I don't want to do that, then you're relying on your own righteousness. But I'm going to keep it on Sunday, Richard. What's the difference? Okay, the difference is that you rely on your own righteousness. 
if daddy says is this way then that is the way simply put we don't change daddy's commands and call it you know righteous simply put this is a very hard thing for us to understand especially here in america because the spirit here in america specifically here it's it's this whole you know you got the right to you got the right to you know, that's why we go online and what we see is just gossip about the president, gossip about this, gossip about that. And it's just so discouraging. What is our generation growing up to see? Think about it. Rebel against authority. You know, just as they're speaking against the president, by the way, very publicly, and not just the president, any authority figure. I'm not just circling the president. Any authority figure. And what are we training? Subconsciously we training our children that we can go ahead and blaspheme authority out there and it's okay. So guess what? Guess what, parents? They're going to do it with you. Because you're an authority in your house, so they're going to go out of your house and say, that dad, he is so, mm. and you know, X, Y, Z, fill it in. They're going to go all over the place, all over town, telling everybody how horrible that he is. Now you go into the, now you go into town and people, they know you, they're looking at you weird. Because now they, they got this picture that your daughter, your son is picturing up there that is not you. So now they're looking at you like, hmm, this is the problem that we have in folks. We don't change things. You know, if we want to really change America, if we really want to change the world, folks, I think the only way to do it is going back to holy order. It's the only answer. It's the only answer. You know how long the earth has been around for? Thousands of years? Okay, for those who believe in million, okay, better yet, you prove my point anymore. And it hasn't worked. We're still going downhill. Something tells me that we need to try what God says. You know one of the best proof that God exists and that his word is authority? It's the fact that we haven't done it. Seriously. The fact that we have not heeded Yet we see the consequences in the world proves to me more that his word is true. Now, if we would have been following and it failed, then we had a reason to rebel. But we never tried it. We have always said to God, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. And look where the world is today. I state my point right there. Simply put. So, moving on in here. Hirsch Humash says this. The basic purpose of the first section of these introductory orations is to now listen to what he says is to instill in the people the belief okay based on its historical experiences Hirsch Humash says I love it because you know this is really really I believe an anointed man in here and by the way it comes in agreement with what the Ramban says too He's saying that the way Moshe is going to explain this word now is going to be through the history of where they've been and where they're going. How did Yeshua explain the law of God? Through parables of experiences of life. Now the element in here, folks, is to understand this. That Moshe, remember? Moshe didn't say, and Moses began to what? It says Moses began to explain this law, right? And we understand that this explaining doesn't mean to observe. It means to fulfill. What is the difference between fulfilling the law of God and observing the law of God? See, anybody can observe the word of God. We have a lot of Torah observant people out there. 
But what's the difference between fulfilling it? Well, observing it means that you're doing it. Keeping Sabbath, eating kosher, kind of going through the motion, following what the text says. Okay, I'm just going to kind of do it. Fulfilling the Torah, however, is different. Because fulfilling the Torah deals with your heart. That's the difference. This is what the problem that we're having today. Because a person that's non-spiritual can observe the Torah. A person who is spiritual fulfills the Torah. Yeshua came not to show you how to observe Torah. Israel was observing Torah for thousands of years. There was no need for that. That's why his teachings are not necessarily different, but they were more targeted towards the heart. Because he was teaching them how to fulfill the law. Now I present the question to all of you here today. Do you want to observe Torah or do you want to fulfill Torah? See, fulfilling Torah is so much more richer because it brings about a change from the inside out. A person that just observes Torah, folks, can be full of dead man's bone inside, by the way. The Pharisees observed Torah quite a bit. And Yeshua called, not all of them, a selective group of them, Yeshua said that they were full of dead man's bone. You can be totally dead inside, folks, and observe Torah, by the way. So the challenge in here today, what Moshe, Rabino Moshe is explaining here, is Moses is now addressing to the children of Israel, saying, up to these 40 years, you have known the Torah. In Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, they received the Ten Commandments. And throughout the rest of the history, they heard the commandments. Moshe now is going to explain, fulfill, address their hearts so they can fulfill the Torah. Isn't that what Yeshua came to do? Because when he came to first century Israel, Israel, first century Israel was eating kosher. First century, uh, century Israel was keeping the Sabbath. First century Israel was doing all the things that the book says. What was the need of the Mashiach then? If they were doing what they were supposed to do because they were observing Torah. They were not fulfilling Torah, folks. And what does it take to fulfill Torah? Look. The basis for fulfilling Torah, as Rabbi here, uh, uh, Hirsch says, is has to be belief. You see, you can observe Torah and have no faith. You can observe Torah and have no love for God. You can do that if you want to fulfill it, though. To fulfill it, it requires faith. And it requires truly a genuine Experience or relationship with the Lord God of Israel. There's a difference, folks. There's a difference of I know of you as opposed to I know you. And this is what he's addressing. So he says in here that he's going to instill in the people the belief based on its historical experience that what Israel requires, now listen to this, in order to subdue the nations and conquer the land is not skills. What? What do you mean they don't require skills? How are they going to conquer the land? See, now we're going to get into the nitty-good of the word. Because now Moshe, Rabino Moshe is going to teach, and I'm going to teach you what faith is like. Number one. Because you see, you guys know the law. I bet you you can, I bet you you can quote the law from 1 to 613, and from 613 backwards to 1. They probably can say it back and forward. But now he's going to teach them something that they don't have. And he's showing them through the historical history, what they went through, 
was aspects of faith. Now he's recounting all the times that they didn't have faith in God. He's going to recall them the time that they fell into idolatry. To teach him what does it mean to love your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. So look, it says in here, um, it's not skills and instruments of warfare, but what? Devotion to God. In other words, the premises of starting the Torah and understanding how to fulfill Torah is that our focus, number one, which Yeshua taught this, our focus, number one, needs to be the promise. If we're not a people that's after the promise, our focus is in the wrong direction then. What do I mean by that? Well, the promise in here, they were th the first thing that uh, Rabino Moshe is addressing is the promise to conquer the land. And he's saying this whole promise of conquering the land is not going to be based on your skills. It's not going to be based on how many M16s you have and AK-47s and 45s you're carrying with you and how many armors you're carrying with you. But it's going to start first and foremost with the devotion of God. Now the context in here is the promise. How many of you are after the promise today? And I'm not talking about physical Israel. Although that is physically the fulfillment of it. But how about the promises that he has for us? The promises of entering his kingdom here today. We are a people, folks, that we're always trying to figure out God. And that is where we make the biggest mistake. We need to live our lives every day. Every day. And if you don't believe me, go to the scripture, read the Bible. We're supposed to live our lives every day as if he's coming tomorrow. Why didn't he say to the disciples, I'm not coming back until about 2,000 years? Did he say that? No. He said, I'm coming soon. Because the idea is we're supposed to live, and I'm going to repeat myself over and over, we're supposed to live as if he's coming tomorrow. But there's a big problem with that. There's a huge problem with that. Because if we live as if he's coming tomorrow, that means we need to really live by faith. That means we cannot be living for ourselves then. Because let me ask you all a question, honestly, and you don't have to answer me, but I want you to answer yourself right now. If I were to tell you right now, Yeshua is returning tonight. Guarantee, he's coming tonight, guys. Sunset. The sky is going to open. The Son of Man is going to be revealed. Let me ask you a question. When you walk out of this, this uh, service today, how will you conduct your life? It's a good question. I want you to think about that. Will you be worrying about your affairs? Will you be worrying about how much money you got in the bank account? Will you be worrying about all X, Y, and Z? If, you, if I tell you and you believe it for sure, he's coming tonight. How will you live your life? I really want you to ask and be honest with yourself. Because that is what you're supposed to do every single day. And by the way, that's not a suggestion. It's a command. This is how you fulfill Torah. The Lord is not interested in lip service, folks. He's done with lip service. I'm telling you right now, he is sick and tired of lip service. And I can honestly say that came from the Lord. He is done with the lip service already. He's done with the plain religion thing already. He is looking for devoted people who really are going to live their lives as if he is coming tomorrow.
not, oh, well, I don't really think he's coming tomorrow, so I'm going to continue doing what I think is right. And know, honestly, folks, you're doing a disservice to your generation. And you know, honestly, that's a selfish attitude. So, look, in here, that essentially, it's not the skills of Israel that that's going to conquer the land, but it's their, their devotion to God. Look, and the fulfillment of his will. Rabbi Hirsch continues to say, let me go back because I know I talk too much. But it says in here that this, this whole purpose of what they're doing is so that they can, he can instill faith in the people. Remember, what is Moses doing? He's explaining the Torah. One of the first elements of explaining the Torah is faith. If we don't have faith, then there's no fulfillment of Torah. So he's saying it has to be based on faith. And the first thing in order of faith is that they need to conquer the promise. And in order to conquer the promise, it's not going to be based on the strength of their own hands. This is a concept that they need to understand if they truly want to fulfill law. So now moving on in here, it says, in the fulfillment of his will, how can we fulfill Torah? This is a good question I'm going to ask you now. How can we fulfill Torah if we cannot even submit to his will? Think about it. If you cannot yield to his will, how can you call yourself a Torah? Well, I guess you could call yourself a Torah observant person. Because that's what Torah observant people do. They observe, but they don't yield. But if you really want to follow what Yeshua taught, then you need to surrender your will to his will, folks. That's a hard one. That requires strength. But more than strength, it requires faith in him. If you really have faith in him, and he is real, and he's not just a, you know, a fairy tale for adults, then why aren't we living as if he's real? You know how much painful that is to see people's lives and see no God in it? You know how disturbing that is to see people who call themselves God, but there's no God in them. And there's a lot to those today, folks. We need to fulfillment of his will has to be the first order of business. And our fulfillment of his will has to do with what I heard says in here is the what? The promise of the land. The promise today. Our focus is to gather the, his people to get into his kingdom and our purpose needs to be to get people to come into the kingdom so that they can inherit the land. If your purpose is not that, then folks, you're just another speck on the earth then. Seriously. And that such obedience to God, which is our sole task in times of peace. In other words, he's saying even in times of peace, we obey, right? It's sufficient also in times of war to overcome all the powers that oppose us. How do we overcome? You know what this rings a bell to? What is uh, Rosh Hashanah says? We overcome evil by doing good. This is echoing what Rabbi Hirsch says in here. So, with obedience to God, we can accomplish everything, he says. Without it, nothing. Israel is to enter upon its path in the history of nations, not as a powerful nation. In other words, the people are going to look at you and say, well, this, I can beat this guy up like nothing. He's like 120 pounds. 5'3", 120 pounds. What can he do to me? 
We're not supposed to look all powerful, folks. We need to get out of that horse. Get out of your high horse. Step into the donkey. Okay? Seriously. We're not supposed to look because our power is not within us. It's his power. Look. So it says in here, skill in the arts of warfare, but as the people of God's moral law. Let me go back in here because I know it kind of throws you off. It says, Israel is to enter upon its path in history of nations, not as a powerful nation, skilled in the arts of warfare, but as a people of God's moral law. Israel's triumphs and defeats throughout its history attest to this point. This is what he's saying. The history that Moshe is bringing in here is actually interpreting the, the, the word of God to them. This is what it means to love God with all your heart and all your soul. This is what it means to love your neighbor, by the way, as yourself. How do we know? How do we know we're fulfilling that? You have to look back in history and read in history in which development of Israel differs from that of all the nations, folks. Zechariah 4, 6, looks what it says. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by my power, but by the spirit, he says, says the Lord of hosts. What was the context in here? That we're going to build a tabernacle, that we're going to build a temple. Saying it's not by your power. It's by my spirit. It's essentially my power that's going to accomplish all these things. But, whoa, 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 back up for a minute. Okay, in order to have that power, in order to walk out that power, you have to have faith. That's the issue that we have in here. There's just none. No, no faith whatsoever. Moving on here. Deuteronomy 1, 6 through 8 says, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. So now he's going to go into, what is the explanation? Now he's going to go into the historical events. You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites to all their neighbors in the Arabah and the, and the hills country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the east sea coast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set in the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So one of the first orders of business that he's given them in here, he's saying you need to hazak yourself, you need to strengthen yourself, you need to develop this faith, which is what we've been discussing up to this point, and you need to take over the possession that I'm giving you. Well, how do we interpret that for us today? Well, even though we don't have the land physically yet, but the promises of entering into his kingdom today, which are very similar, because here's the thing, folks, you don't have to necessarily be in Jerusalem to experience the kingdom of God. You can experience the promises right now. You can conquer spiritually the land right now. What are we waiting for? See, the problem is that we're waiting for the white horse, for the sky to open, and for the Son of Man to come down to experience the kingdom of God. Suit, suit yourself. That's your, that's your waste of time. See, we can experience the kingdom of God now. Because that's the idea. If you're not experiencing the kingdom of God now, then guess what? You're not fulfilling the Torah. You're just observing the Torah. I'm going to continue reminding you of that. There's a difference, folks. That's why Yeshua's teaching was so much more powerful. He was teaching something much more deeper. Look, Nachmanides says this concerning what we just read. It says, he mentioned to them the land and the road that they are to traverse. Listen to what it says in here. In their stages. In other words, 
to conquer this land, to enter into the kingdom of Hashem, we're going to have to traverse through what? Stages. Seasons. We're going to have to overcome. We get out of one traverse, we walk into another one. But the difference is that as we're doing this, we're going up. We're not going down, we're going up. We have challenges on the way up, but we continue to go up. That's the, that's the idea, that's the difference. So it says, and afterwards he said, Behold, I have set the land before you, which I swore to your fathers. Go in and possess the land. This being a command, he says. And it, it, it says it in the Hebrew in a commanding form. Possess the land. Not just an assurance and promise as I have explained. In other words, this whole thing with the land, this whole thing with the promises of God, folks, is more than just an assurance and a promise, although they're there. He's saying, I'm commanding you. Kind of like he commands us to have faith. He commands us to do all these things, folks, because there is a reason behind it. The precept to conquer the land of Israel is included in the Tariyak. What is the Tariyak? It's the 613 commandments. Mitzvot which are binding for all times. That we are not to leave it. Now listen to what Nachmanidi says in here. We are not to leave it in the hands of another nation's. It is our duty to take that, what God has given us, and take it with gladness and conquer it. Not leave it up to somebody else to do it. Folks, this is some serious responsibilities that this parasha is opening up with. Look, that we are not to leave it to waste and that we are to dwell in it, folks. But you see, we won't dwell in it. We will leave it for another nation to do it if our focus is someplace else. That's the problem. You know, all of you are probably sitting here thinking, well, I will never do that. But I submit to you, a lot of us are. Because you see, when your focus is not in the promise, then you are leaving it to somebody else. In other words, our actions speak louder than words. Ever heard of that phrase? What is the actions? What is it that you're doing? Prove it. Let me see your works, as James says. Let me see your, your faith through your works. Look. John 6, 27 says, Do not work for the food that perishes, Kind of coming along with, this is echoing what Nachmanides just said. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that what? Endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has sent his seal. Yeshua said, do not labor for the food that perishes, but rather labor for that food that lasts for everlasting life. Some of the commentaries from, uh, from Hazal says that a man who has no faith, when they hear these words, they mock at it. Interesting. Because it almost sounds poetic what he's saying. But the reality is, Yeshua is what? Explaining the Torah. This is one of the first concepts to fulfill Torah, folks. In other words, I'm going to get down to it. To fulfill Torah, you have to have the heart for it. You have to have a circumcised heart. Now, how many times did... God said in the word, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no more. Okay, why did he say circumcise the foreskin of your heart? Because the Father is not interested in observing the Torah. He wants fulfillment of the Torah. We can only fulfill Torah if our hearts are circumcised. This is, these are the words 
that Moses is explaining to Israel as they're about to enter into the land. Do you realize how prophetic that is for us today? Do you realize that we are about to enter into the land? Call it what you want, folks. We are a lot closer than we were back in Paul's days. That's for sure. We are a whole lot closer. And if back then they were zealous for God, why don't we have that zealousness today? You know, hello. You know, this is back here. We're over here. The kingdom is here. Hmm. We should be more zealous than they were. Why is that zealousness not there? You don't want to know why? Because again, our focus is in the world. We're too focused in the things of the world. And we're not seen through a spiritual eye. We're not, we don't have the heart for God. We're just kind of doing this, kind of like doing it just because. As a kind of like an insurance. You know, if it all fails, I got nothing to lose. We're not coming with the right heart, folks. This is very, very important. Very, very important. So he says, our, 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 our daily work, the things that we do, what we strive for, what we meditate essentially needs to be kingdom-oriented, folks. If it's not, then you need to check your heart, essentially. Look, Matthew 24, 44. Here's another parable of Yeshua concerning the kingdom, which is what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy chapter 1 when he's going through the historical accounts. Look, therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect, he says. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, he says. That's a good question. How many of us in here consider ourselves to be faithful, wise servants? If you are, it's okay, but this is what he says. He defines it this way. Make sure that whatever you label yourself, you match it with Yeshua's teaching and Moses. Who then is the faithful, wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the what? Proper time. Everything in its seasons, folks. This is another aspect of faith. We kind of like to go ahead of God. Blessed is that servant. Now listen to what he says. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Do you understand what's going on in here? Because you see, the servant is doing what the master requires. Meaning he is being zealous for the father. He is kingdom oriented. And he's saying, blessed is he when he comes. Because remember, when is he coming? When is Yeshua returning? No, right? We None of us know. When is he returning? So what do we do? If we don't know when he's returning, what shall we do then? Shall we continue with our lives as normal every day? Or shall we be kingdom-minded and kingdom-oriented as he commanded his disciples to be? Because you see, this parable is addressing this servant. This servant didn't know when he was returning, by the way. It's not like Yeshua said, I'm returning on June 20th. He didn't say anything. This servant has no clue when the master is going to show up. This is why it's so important. So he says, blessed is the servant who his master will find doing when he comes, right? Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But, if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Oh, that one gets really good. Because how many of us in our hearts, we have said that? Yeah, we've been hearing that he's coming for the last 2,000 years. 
you know, and I'm looking at different calendars and all these calendars point for at least another thousand years before he returns. We need to be careful, folks. Where is our heart? Why are we concerned about the calendar when he's returning where we should be the faithful servant and just do what he says that we need to do? He didn't say do it when I come close to coming. When it gets close to that date, then get busy. He says, do it regardless. Look, truly I say to you, he will set him over procession, but if uh, that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards. All these folks are metaphors, by the way. It's not talking literally. It's not saying the guy, you know, the guy's going around punching everybody. You know, the servant who eats and drinks is it's also an, an allegory to Again, the affairs of life, the riches and the comforts of life, number one. Beating his servants. It's how many times we see that spiritually, folks. We beat and tear each other up all the time. Not physically. Well, in some cases, yeah. But we do that spiritually. We tear each other down with words. With drunkards. Doesn't mean that you need to get drunk every night. A drunkard is a person who is wavering left and right spiritually, who is not steady in his faith. This is the servant who, by the way, is saying to himself, is a wicked servant, by the way, who's saying to himself, you know what? I don't believe he's coming in my time anyways. So because he's not coming in my time, I'm going to do what I want to do, essentially. And yeah, I'll keep the commandments, Sabbath and all that, you know. But we're not living our lives as he's coming today. That's why I proposed the question earlier. If I were to tell you, or better yet, forget if I tell you, what if you heard right now, all of us right now in this room, heard the voice of God, all of us, saying that he's coming tonight? What will you do? How about if you had a burning bush experience tonight when you go home? What will you do? It's not questions that we need to ask, folks. Because that reaction or that action, rather, is what he wants from us without you needing a burning bush experience or some kind of miracle voice coming from the heavens to tell you this. He's already declared it to his word. Live as of a coming tomorrow. That's what, by the way, the faithful servant does. This is the Be'ar Hazotah Torah. This is the explanation of the Torah. Have the heart to live and trust in God. It begins with that. If you cannot do that, forget about Sabbath. Forget about eating kosher. Go have your pork sandwich. Do yourself a favor. Go enjoy life. Seriously. Indulge in sin all the way. You know, my motto is this. If I cannot have it all the way, I won't have it. So either we stop playing religion and take off the, the mantle, the facade of righteousness, and start walking it out. Because that's what he's looking. He's looking for a servant that's faithful. So it says in here, he begins to beat his fellow servants, eats, drinks, and with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him. Stop trying to figure out when he's going to come. Because the ones who are in their heart thinking he's not coming in this season, it might be the time that he is going to come. That's why he says he's going to come when he does not expect it. In other words, 
He, Yeshua. I thought it was going to take about another thousand years before you return. According to the calendar, you still got about another thousand years. You better go back up. <coughs> Wicked servant. Be a faithful servant and live as if he's coming tomorrow. Now, that may sound foolish, but since when the things of God sound really, really interesting to a worldly person? Look, when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know, and I will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. You know, folks, that everything that Yeshua addressed in his parables was not to the nations, by the way. Every word in the word of God addresses one group of people and only one group of people, Israel. This is not talking about the, uh, the nations. The nations have already been judged. These, that's why he says, what? Hypocrites. The nations are not hypocrites, by the way. The nations are real. And I admire that of them because they're real. Honestly, I do. I can't stand a hypocrite. I just can't stand them. I'd rather you just tell me I am vile. That's that. I'll respect you more than telling me, well, I'm all righteous, but yet you are profaning his name every day. So, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. Now, this is what we're going to start understanding where Moses talks about explaining the Torah. Remember, we're talking about the issues of the heart. Understanding what, what uh, Deh Ramban uh, share and what uh, her share and, of course, what we read in the plain text of Scripture. Look what it says in here because, you see, a lot of times we understand things the way we see it. We all see things the way we want to see it, essentially. Not necessarily the way it's given. How do we fulfill the midst of loving your neighbor as yourself? One of the problems that we're having today, folks, is that we got too many opinions. And, you know, maybe all of them are good, but the problem is that we are walking them out differently. Better yet, maybe we have a great interpretation, but we ourselves are not walking it. In this parable, that's why Yeshua taught in parables. Parables show affairs of life. This is what Moses is doing. He's explaining it, not through a textbook, but rather through life. Okay. He says in here, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. You got to understand what's going on in here. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then also will answer saying, they were answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? In this parable, they're asking, when did we see you doing this? Hey, it's a good question today, right? When did you see him in prison? When did you see him when he was sick? When did you see him when there was a need? I'm not going to speak, but I'm just going to let the word say it. Then I will answer to them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do to it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. See, because we always have this concept, and again, it goes back to, that's why Moses is explaining this Torah, folks, so that we don't fall. We have this concept that we put God up there, and we're down here. When we see one another, folks, we're supposed to see him. 
I know you probably don't get that, but one day I hope you will. That's why he says in here, as you did to the least of this, you did it to me. Did they really physically do it to him? Not physically, no. That's why they're asking, when do we do this? When do we do this to you? Lord forbid that we do that to you, Yeshua. But he's saying you did it. Because when you did it to that little one, you did it to me. So how do we fulfill love your neighbor as yourself? He's telling you right here in the parable. See, more often than not, folks, especially relationships with one another, in these latter days, I regret to say that it is awful. Awful, awful. You know, we have no concept of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. None whatsoever. We sit in here and we make excuses why not to help somebody by reasoning yourself out of a commandment because, oh, well, he had it coming. He should have thought the way I thought and he would have never been in that situation. Do yourself a favor, folks. Be careful on how you're judging people because not every situation is black and white. Things happen in life. There were poor people in Israel. There were unfortunate people in Israel. What did they do? What did they do? What did they do wrong? Yeshua said you will always have the poor with you. What did they do wrong? Did they mismanage their Did they have it coming to them? We need to be careful. You know, this discernment that needs to take place, don't get me wrong, but we need to be careful that our discernment is not extending to those who really, it, life happens, things happen. Sick, the same thing. People get sick. What is their fault because they got sick? In either circumstances, folks, our neglect to go out and help or visit, or in any of these cases I was mentioned in this parable, our neglect to extend, let's just leave it at that, is neglecting him. Thus, you are not fulfilling the commandment of love your neighbor as yourself. I don't care in what view you look at it. The view that he's looking at, which is the heart, it's what you need to be viewing at, not in the superficial surface. This is why, folks, it is so important to understand. Now, let me, let me rephrase it here because he says all these things, right? You did not visit me in prison. I was hungry. You didn't give me no food. You did all these things. Do you think that in Yeshua mentioning this in a parable, by the way, historic account, real life situation, do you think by any chance that any of these people that he's talking to in here are keeping Sabbath? Eating kosher, maybe? Wearing a nice talit with zitzits? Yes, they are. Oh, they look in the park. Look what they're in this. We were reading today in prayer, and I was reading a part in prayer that's talking about, in, in one of the perils of Yeshua, he's talking about that even the harlots and the tax collector will precede you in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That's all I got to say. A harlot and a tax collector, he says to the Pharisees, they will precede you in the kingdom of heaven. So be careful in how we're judging. We have to be very careful because you see the Pharisees look good, but a harlot looks horrible. Yeah, they're going to be very surprised. So I'm going to conclude with this, folks. First Peter 4, 9 through 10 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, dealing with the issues of the heart. You know, this is why you should also have the parable of the talents. What are you doing with your talent, by the way? Because the parable of the talents deal with two commandments. I don't know if you're aware of that. 
Do you know which commandments I deal with? It deals with loving God with all your heart and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Imagine that those two commandments in the parable of talents, it shows you how to fulfill it. What he has entrusted you with, whether it be financially, spiritually, whatever it is that he has equipped you with, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it today? Are you burying it? Or are you using it to make more? That's loving God with all your heart and all your soul and loving your neighbor as yourself. There's talents out there, folks. There's lots of talents, but the problem is that people are wasting them. Completely wasting them because they don't want to sacrifice and they don't want to yield to his will. They haven't died to themselves, essentially, still. So, show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve what? By the way, that, word, that Greek word for gift, guess what it is? Charisma. It's talking about a spiritual gift or you know, charisma. That's where you get charismatic, a gift. But it also can mean a donation. It's talking about both. Both. If you go in the Greek, it, it, the gift is it's not just a specific gift. It's why a gift. The Lord has equipped each one of us in this body for a function. And when one of us fails, guess what, folks? Yeah, the tabernacle kind of looks lopsided. All of us need to work together so that tabernacle looks straight and perfect and is fully erect. He says, as each receive a gift, use it not to serve yourself, by the way, to serve one another. And then that one another, it includes you too. It's okay to reap from a gift that God gives you. But let it not just be limited for you about your brothers and sisters, about those who are in need. As good stewards of God's various grace. Now, this is a word that gets abused so much, you know, good steward of God, you know, we become very hard. A good steward of God means you actually helping to contribute towards the kingdom, folks. Don't cheat yourself out of that word. It has nothing to do with you being, you know, uh, frugal with your money. It has to do with where you put in your money, where you put in your talents. Same thing. It's not just money. It's talents. Where are you doing what, what God is giving you? Are you holding back? And calling a good steward? Or are you giving it? As he commands us to do. So it says each one of us ought to do this. Hebrews 6, 10 through 12 says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. In other words, folks, not that we should be serving, and this is all has to do with this parasha of the explanation of the Torah. It's always been the same, folks. Nothing has changed. It's always been a heart issue. The things that you're doing, he's saying that God has now overlooked them. A lot of times, we don't do something because we feel that we're not going to be appreciated. And guess what? You're right. You're not. I guarantee you, everything that you do for one another, we're not going to appreciate the work that we do for one another. That's hands down. I experienced that in the last five years in here. Nobody appreciates anything you do for them. And truth be told, to that degree. But it's not about the people. Because we don't seek glory from men and women. We seek glory from him. I could care less whether you appreciate what I do for you or not. If I hand you right now $100,000, I'm not expecting you to treat me with royalties. It's not about you. Because remember, what did we just read? As you did to the, one of these little ones you did to me. 
I'm, I'm, when I'm looking at you or you or you, I'm not seeing you. I'm seeing him at the end of the day. And I know that I'm going to be judged for that. So the, to fulfill Torah, Torah tells me that my heart needs to yield to that. You know what that means? That means that I need to work in my heart now. Many of us in this walk are not doing that, folks. You know, we jump into commandments and we, ha we haven't even learned how to fulfill commandment number one. Yet we're in commandment 600. And we haven't even mastered number one. Learn to master one and two, okay? Before you jump into the rest. We need to learn to, again, circumcise our hearts and be kingdom-minded at the end of the day. So, it is the Lord who is looking at the works that you're doing at the end of the day. Now, let me ask you something. If you generally believe that there is a God in Israel and that he's alive, and by the way, he's watching right now, do you believe he's watching right now? Or am I talking into deaf air? I believe he's watching right now. I believe he's hearing right now. Let him be the witness right now between all of us and here in this room. He sees what you're doing. He actually sees better than you because he sees your heart. You don't even in your heart until a situation presents itself. So these are the things that if we generally believe that there's a God in Israel, folks, then I believe that this walk and this faith and the people in it need to be different. In other words, when somebody walks in through that door and sees this community, I don't want them to look at this community like a second community. When somebody comes through these doors and talks to one of you, I don't want them to leave here thinking, wow, I just felt like I was talking to my neighbor. When somebody walks in through these doors, which by the way it happens, and they are just completely beat up from the world, don't be giving them worldly advice. Because that's what they get in TV, or that's what they get for services out there. I want them to see generally that there's a God here, and that the people have faith in him, and that they can see the genuine answers. Get what I'm saying? Your vocabulary needs to be different. Your reason needs to be different. How you think needs to be different. If all these qualities you're still holding on to your old self, folks, then you're cutting yourself short. Seriously. And you will never be able to fulfill Torah. You will be an observant of Torah, but you won't fulfill Torah. So he says in here, moving on. And the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints, by the way, serving the holy people, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He says that that drive, kind of like Pinchas, that zealousness cannot wear off. It is something that needs to go into the end completely. So that you may, look what he says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith, he were, and patience inherit the promises. By the way, promises in there is in plural in the Greek. So we're not talking about the Holy Land. The Holy One is the promise. This Peter's not, uh, I'm sorry, the author of the writer of Hebrews is not just talking about the promised land. It's talking about the promises of entering into his kingdom today. And being delivered today, folks. Lots of people in this body that need deliverance. Mental deliverance, spiritual deliverance. I mean, there's a lot of deliverance that's needed, but how can deliverance take place if we're not even acknowledging that we need deliverance? 
If we want to fulfill Torah, then we need deliverance from our mindset. You know, a lot of times we preach this. we like, you know, I don't understand these people. Why can't they get Torah? They're for the same reason why you can't fulfill it. Well, honestly, they don't get it. They won't walk in it. They won't observe it. Guess what? You won't fulfill it. Stage three, by the way. Stage one, two, and three. One is complete rebellion. I don't want to know about the Torah. Two is, oh, I'll observe Torah. Three is, I want to fulfill Torah. But it's the same reason. There's a veil. Why don't, they, why they don't come to Torah? Because there's a veil in their eyes and in their hearts. What is stopping you from fulfilling Torah is my question. Same thing. There's a veil in your heart and in your eyes. Look, Hebrews 11.6, and we'll end with this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Why is it impossible to please them? Because without faith, you cannot fulfill Torah. So you'll, you'll become just like a Pharisee, a group of Pharisees, not all the Pharisees, a group within the Pharisees. You'll become a religious, uh, uh, if you want to call it, dictator who sits around judging people based on, on an observance but not looking in the intent of the people's heart. So you cannot please God without faith. Could Abraham fulfill and be a friend of God if it wasn't through faith? Could have David? Could have the disciples? Do you know that each and one of you has a Bible today? Do you know that men die for that? Would you have done the same? It's a good question. Because you know what I mean? In order for you to have that Bible, that means that somebody, somebody in the past, had to actually stop living for themselves and live for God in order to be persecuted to death so that you can have that Bible in your laps today. How about that? They couldn't just keep their lives and do, you know, God part-time. It never works, folks. By the way, it never works. Either you are full-time with him or you're not. So somebody died, somebody gave their life, somebody believed. And now today, each and one of us can enjoy going to a store and having your little Bibles and having the sections divided for you with the names, nice pretty little tabs and everything. Somebody sacrificed their lives for that. You have the gospel today. You know why? Somebody gave their lives. And you think that at that moment they were thinking to themselves, why am I doing this? What do I benefit from this? They weren't thinking that way, folks. And if they weren't thinking that way, if they would have actually been thinking selfishly, today we would have never known the gospel. Today we would have never had a book to read about the gospel because somebody was too selfish to do it. So the things that you do, folks, whether you realize it or not, Make a difference for somebody in somebody's life. I appreciate the fact that we have Bibles in here today. And I honestly, I really appreciate it. And you know what? I know that it took somebody sacrificing. And because of that, I'm willing to do whatever the Lord wants me to do to sacrifice. Because I know that even though I may not see it right now, at the end, it's going to pay off. And isn't that the goal ultimately? So we cannot please them without emunah. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he what? Well, if he exists, if he truly exists, then why don't we have that attitude like he really exists? You can't draw near to God. Otherwise, you're drawing in through religion, and that's only going to take you so far. Do you want to enter into the Holy of Holies or do you want to stay in the outer courts is the question. We want to draw into the Holy of Holies, folks, then this needs to die right now.
We need to start seeing one another as an instrument of God. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You know, I may not like you. I may not like you. I may not like you. I don't like the way you look. It doesn't matter. We don't give based on, well, I kind of like the way your hair is today, so I feel like giving to you. You know, I like the way you think. I'm just going to give to you today. Or I want to devote my time into you because you smell good. It's not about that, folks. We don't give and we don't, we don't invest in people's lives based on appearances. We invest in people's lives because we know that they are an instrument of the Lord. And that we're doing it for him at the end of the day. We must draw near to him knowing that he exists and that he rewards, keyword, those who what? Seek him. That's a good one. Because he is a rewarder to those who seek him. If we believe, then why aren't we doing it? Like I already said, let's put your test. Let me put, what is that saying? Put your mouth to test to your mouth or whatever. Let me put, yeah, put those words that you speak into the test now. Put your mouth where your money is, right? Let's see it. Let's see it. I want to see it. I'm done. I don't want to hear about it no more. I want to see it. Tickling ears. I think, I think we're done with tickling ears. Let's see it. Let's see what God looks like. Let's see a congregation that is devoted completely into God. That can show the nations what this Torah, this whole thing of Torah, that people hate so much. And I can understand why they hate it, because when you're only observing Torah, you become a legalistic, I hate to say, a prick. You do. You know, going around with your build a square, beating everybody across the head. Meanwhile, you're dead inside. So let's show the nations what this looks like. And let's start by, before we can even do this, today, when you leave this congregation today, you need to go home and examine yourself. And I, again, I want this question to echo tonight for each and one of you. If Yeshua returns tonight, how will you conduct your life from here on out? Better yet, I'm going to give you a little bit more time. Yeshua is coming back in three days. What will you do for the next three days? What will you do? What will you do different? Because whatever it is that you will do different, that's what you need to be doing now. Permanently. Until he returns. Amen? So my teaching today is going to be a little bit different than what I usually do. But before I get to what the Father really led me to talk about today, is I want to address the hearts of the people and why I am going to talk about what I'm going to talk about today. So in our half Torah portion, in our reading, we hear Isaiah addressing a people whose hearts are not in it. He is addressing a people whose hearts have gone astray from Hashem. Unfortunately... They aren't admitting, they're not even seeing the error in their ways. And that is why they're still bringing their offerings. That is why they're still praying. That's why they're still coming before him at the new moon and on his Sabbaths and on his high holy days. Because they don't realize, because they've gone away from the Torah, the truth of the Torah, which is the heart of the Torah, which is the love of the Torah, that what they're doing is absolutely an abomination to him. And that led to what t this day, today, the date on the Hebrew calendar is all about. Today is the 9th of Av. And throughout the world today, Jews are celebrating a joyful Sabbath, rejoicing because it is their Sabbath day. 
But tonight, as the sun sets, they're going to be mourning. They will be mourning across the globe for a number of reasons that I'm going to touch on. On this day, because today is the absolute saddest day in Jewish history, the 9th of Av, Tisha B'Av, on this day, we read in Numbers, the spies returned from Haaretz with a bad report. That night, the Jews gathered in their tents and they bemoaned Hashem for bringing them into a wilderness and into a land where he's going to kill them. Instead of recognizing all of the good things that he had done to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, out of the nation of Mitzrayim. Rain's coming down. All of these amazing things that he did to redeem them from the slavery in Egypt. And here they are, moaning, grumbling, and complaining that he's brought them into a land that he's going to kill them. And it went, that plague, that, that, that nastiness went throughout the camp. Today, on this day, we saw the destruction of both holy temples. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in what we know as 586 B.C. The second temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. The battle at Betar was lost on this day, the 9th of Av. In the year 133 A.D., Simon bar Koba led a Jewish revolt against the Romans. In this year, on this day, the 9th of Av, they were brutally butchered by the Romans. Completely defeated. It was believed by the Jewish nation, the Jewish culture, and the, and the people that Simon bar Koba would fulfill the messianic longings of the Jewish people. Unfortunately, they missed the one who came as their Messiah. On this day, one year later, the Temple Mount was plowed, completely demolished, according to the historians. On this day, in 1290 AD, the Jews were expelled from England. On this day, in 1492, as Columbus was sailing his ocean blue, the Jews were expelled from Spain. The Edict of Expulsion was signed by Queen Isabella herself on March 31st, 1492. The Jews were given exactly four months to put their affairs together and to leave the country. It took effect on the 9th of Av. Believe it or not, historians believe that World War II was simply a culmination, a finishing off of the World War that started in 1914, when Germany declared war against the Romans. We know it as the First World War. And yet, it never really came to a conclusion because once again, Germany was involved against Russia in the Second World War and Hitler and the Holocaust. World War I, when Germany declared war against Russia, began on the 9th of Av. So unfortunately, the Jewish people have some very serious negative history on the 9th of Av. The 9th of Av is often and generally observed beginning on midday on the 8th of Av, wherein Torah study is limited to topics that are of sad nature or of the temple destruction. 
Chabad.org says that a square meal is eaten in the afternoons before the Mincha services, the prayer services of the evening. Then late in the afternoon, a separation meal. A Suda Hamafseket. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm reading the transliteration. It is eaten. It, is con it consists of bread and a hard-boiled egg that has been dipped in ashes, accompanied by water. And that's it. Very light before they begin, yeah, before they begin their fast. If the meal is, is eaten alone, sitting on a low stool, because we don't want anything that has been exalted. We don't want to recognize ourselves as being exalted. The meal must be over by sundown, because at sundown begins the night of Av, and therefore the fast of Av. At which time, all of the laws of Tisha B'Av take effect. The evening services are held in synagogue, where the ark has been stripped of its decorative curtain and the lights have been dimmed. Evening prayers are followed by the chanting of the Book of Lamentations. Morning prayers the next day are held without talit and tefillin, since both are considered adornments. Most of the morning is occupied by the reading of kinot, elegies marking the various tragedies that befell the Jewish people. Work is permitted on Tisha B'Av, but is discouraged. On this day, one's focus should be on mourning and on repentance. If one must work, it is preferable to begin after midday. It is customary to give extra charity on Tisha B'Av. After midday, it is permissible to sit on chairs. Up till now, they've been sitting on the floor. Talit and Tefillin are then worn during the afternoon prayer in the synagogue the ark's curtain is restored to its place before the afternoon prayers. However, today, this particular ninth of Av falls on a Shabbat. So we can't fast on Shabbat because Shabbat is a day of feasting, it is a day of joy, it is a day of celebration of Torah and of the Shalom that we receive. Right? It is a preparation for the Olam Haba. So it needs to be a joyful time because in the Olam Haba there won't be any mourning won't need, be any need for fasting. So when it falls on a Shabbat, or it falls on Sunday, same rules apply. Shabbat, it's a time of joy and feasting. No fasting. In all cases, when Tisha B'Av is observed on Sunday, it is forbidden to study Torah starting with Shabbat midday. Aside for those sections of Torah which are permitted to be studied on Tisha B'Av. As such, on this Shabbat, we do not recite a chapter of Ethics of the Fathers, as is the customary in many communities on summertime Shabbat afternoons. No mournful separation meal is conducted before the fast. Instead, shortly before sunset, we partake of a sumptuous and joyous pre-fast meal. Care must be taken, however, that this meal ends before sunset. We sit on chairs of regular height and wear normal footwear until nightfall. Only washing, eating, and drinking are prohibited starting with sunset. Then, leather shoes are removed and other footwear is worn. Sit on the floor or on a low stool. Havdalah, which we sometimes do normally at the end of our Shabbat, is not done until the end of the close of Sunday. Because that is when the week begins. Because it's a time of joy, a celebration. And a look, looking forward to the next Shabbat. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 6 through 9, Hashem is appearing to uh, Solomon for the second time. Solomon has built the temple. 
And Hashem comes to Solomon and reminds him of what is necessary. He says, if you're going to follow my laws, you follow my statutes, you do as I command you to do, then I will be with you. And I will bless this sanctuary. But in verse 6, he begins, if you at all turn back, you or your sons from following me do not guard my commands, my laws which I have set before you, but shall go and serve other mighty ones and bow yourselves to them. Then I shall cut off Israel from the face of the soil which I have given them and send away from my presence this house which I have set apart for my name. Israel shall be a proverb and a mockery among the people. And this house which has been exalted, everyone who passes by it shall be astonished and hiss and say, Why has Hashem done thus to this land and to this house? And their response will be, because they have forsaken Hashem, their Elohim, who brought their fathers out of the land of Mitzrayim, and they took hold of other mighty ones, and bowed themselves to them and served them. That is why Hashem has brought all this evil on them. In 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, we read about the actual destruction of the first temple that Solomon built. In the fifth new moon, on the seventh of the new moon, which was the nineteenth year of the sovereign of Nebuchadnezzar, sovereign of Babel, Nebuchadnezzar, the chief of the guard, a servant of the sovereign of Babel, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of Hashem and the house of the king and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. And thus we read the destruction of the, of the first temple. Solomon's great, wonderful temple has been brought down low. Why? Because of what Isaiah was rebuking the people for. Because they had gone astray. And so far astray, they couldn't even see that they were astray. They no longer recognized that their ways were in error. And Hashem had no further desire to be within their midst. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, we read Yeshua. It says, And going out, Yeshua went away from the set-apart place, from the holy temple, and his taught ones came near to point out him the buildings of the set-apart place. And Yeshua said to them, Do you not see all of these? Truly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another at all, which shall not be thrown down. We read the similar account in Luke chapter 21, 5 and 6. And as some were speaking about the holy place, that it was adorned with goodly stones and with gifts. He said, These that you see, that the days are coming in which not one stone shall be left upon another, that shall not be thrown down. We don't read in Scripture the actual destruction of the second temple because Scripture had been written at that point. And the Bible had basically, the Scripture that entered into it had been closed or was to be closed. And yet, Yeshua himself, the greatest prophet ever, because he did the word of God at all times, knew that the second destruction would be coming. Why? It's interesting because I don't think until I was studying for this particular portion that my heart ever really understood the destruction of the second temple. And why? But once again, it had to do with their hearts. Hashem is once again saying, you've strayed from my ways. Nehemiah and Ezra 
took upon themselves to rebuild and reestablish the kingdom and the temple there in Jerusalem after the first destruction. And they brought the people back to Torah. And the Torah was proclaimed. And it was read in the hearing of all of them. And yet, they went astray again. And then they're going astray. Hashem decided it's time once again to remove my dwelling place from within their midst. For those of you that have the Scriptures version, if you'd like to follow along, I'm going to skip a little bit, but Lamentations follow, uh, begins on page 795. And I'm going to begin, I'm going to read parts of chapter 1 and, and 2. How she sits, the city once great with people. Like a widow she has become, one great among the nations. A princess among provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly at night and her tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no comforter for her. Her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Yehuda has gone into exile because of affliction and because of harsh labor. She has dwelt among the nations. She has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her between narrow places. The ways to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the appointed times. All her gates are deserted. Her priests sigh. Her maidens are afflicted, and she has bitterness. Her adversaries have become chief. Her enemies have become at ease. For Hashem has afflicted her because of her many transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. And all the splendor has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her rulers have been, become like buck. They have found no pasture, and they go powerless before the pursuer. Yerushalayim has sinned greatly, therefore she has become defiled. All who esteemed her despised her, because they have seen her nakedness. She herself has sighed and turned away. The adversary has spread his hand over all her precious matters. Indeed, she has seen the nations have entered her set-apart place, those whom you commanded not enter your assembly. The yoke of my transgressions has been bound by his hand, she says, woven together and thrust upon my neck. He has made my strength stumble. Hashem has given me into hands which I am unable to withstand. Hashem has trodden down all my strong men in my midst and has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. Hashem has trodden down as in a winepress, the maiden daughter of Yehuda. This is why I weep. My eye, my eye is running down with water because the comforter who could bring back my life has been far from me. My children are stunned for the enemy has prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands. There is no comforter for her. Hashem has commanded concerning Jacob. His neighbors are his adversaries. Yerushalayim has become an uncleanness among them. Hashem is righteous, for I rebelled against his mouth. Hear now, all peoples, and see my pain. My maidens and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to bring back their life. How Hashem in his displeasure has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud. He has cast down from the heavens to the earth the comeliness of Israel, and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his displeasure. Hashem has swallowed up without compassion all the pastures of Jacob. In his wrath he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Yehuda. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the rain and its rulers. 
In the heat of displeasure, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand from before the enemy. He burns against Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary, and he kills all who delighted the eye. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his wrath like fire. Hashem has been like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds, and he increases mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Yehuda. He has demolished his booth like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. Hashem has made the appointed times and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion, and despises sovereigns and priests in his raging displeasure. Hashem has cast off his slaughter place. He has rejected his set-apart place. He has delivered the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of Hashem, as on the day of an appointed time. Hashem has planned to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line, and he has made the rampart and wall to lament. Together they have languished. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her sovereign and her rulers are among the nations. The Torah is no more, and her prophets have found no vision from Hashem. The elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. They have thrown down dust on their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The maidens of Yerushalayim have set their heads hang, have let their hang, heads hang to the ground. My eyes are spent with tears. My inward parts ferment. My bile has been poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, as children and the infants languish in the streets. How shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Yerushalayim? To what shall I liken you to comfort you, O maiden daughter of Zion? For your breach is as great as the sea. Who shall heal you? Your prophets have been falsehood and folly for you, and have not shown you your crookedness to turn back your captivity. But their visions for you are false and misleading messages. All who pass by have clapped their hands at you. They have whistled, and they shake their heads at the daughter of Yerushalayim. Is this the city that is called the perfection of loveliness, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They have whistled, and they gnashed their teeth. They say we have swallowed her up. This is certainly the day we waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. Hashem has done what He planned. He has filled His word which he, which he commanded in days of old. He has torn down without compassion and He has let your enemy rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. Fortunately, we have hope. There is always hope. We have hope because history is cyclical. We have hope because Hashem sent Cyrus to free the people from Babylon. Do you know Cyrus was a type of the Messiah? He brought them redemption from their captivity. Cyrus then sent Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Hashem has also sent Yeshua to free us 
from the bondage of sin and the bondage of Egypt. Yeshua has sent us into the world to build the kingdom. He will return to build the third temple. But eventually, there will be no need for temple. Because as we read in Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23, And I saw no dwelling place, for Hashem El Shaddai is its dwelling place. And the Lamb, the city, had no need of the sun, nor of the moon, to shine in it, for the esteem of Elohim lightened it, and the lamp is its lamp. That's your half Torah today. So I'm going to make the connection of the Brihada Shab with the Torah concept of leadership. So we have two scriptures here that are connected to the leader to the Torah regarding leadership, and it's Deuteronomy 1, 13 and 17. It says here. How can I bear by myself the weight of the burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise understanding and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, The thing you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as head over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall be not intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. So here's the connection with, the, with Paul. In Acts 9, 14 to 16, it says, And here he has authorized from the chief priests to bind all who call your name. And this is Ananias praying to the Father, saying that Saul himself has the authority of the chief priests to come and attack your people. Uh, but the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So we're going to look into this part. I'm dividing it into two separate parts. We're going to look at Saul and how he's connected to the, the Deuteronomy text. So Saul, he was a, a great student of the Torah. He, he even said it himself that he is the Hebrews of all Hebrews. He is. There's no more, no more Jewish can you get as Paul. And here we say that Paul, who is now Saul, who is considered Paul, was ordained to be a leader in Israel. He was ordained in the natural by the chief men. He was not only was he ordained by the Lord Himself, but he had the ordination uh, of the of the Sahedrin of the people of the headship of Israel at the time. But his zeal was focused in the wrong place. So even though he was called to be a great leader, God saw something in his heart that was going to benefit the kingdom of God, and he turned him. But of course, his focus needed a little bit more focusing, so he got blindsided. So by doing so, Yeshua blinds him, and then he becomes the most pivotal leader in Israel for Messiah. And he is the one that actually, <clears throat> excuse me for the voice, it's going away. Because of his <clears throat> knowledge in the scriptures and the, the desire to bring correction to the people and to bring the to to have this perfect balance between Messiah and the elk and the rulings of the people of the sages 
he is he's pivotal in the sense that he would be the 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 one who gives the interpretation of the Torah after the return after the death of Messiah. So he was a pillar or a foundation of our faith. <clears throat> a lot of zealous leaders for upholding the law of man's tradition at that time. So the zealousness, if you're putting it in the wrong place, it could bring death. So your zeal, you have to have this, you have to have wisdom with zealousness to be able to then accomplish the task. What does wisdom with zealousness mean? It means that you will you will give everything up to, for the cause. Your parents, your children, your fathers, your your etc. etc. You will have no stronghold, no soul ties that will keep you from doing your job. That's zealousness with wisdom. But at the same time, you're gentle, you're kind, you're caring. You have those qualities that you're not going to kill the sheep. You're not going to destroy them with that fervent zealousness. You'll bring correction with love. You'll bring you'll bring an uh, an a, a correction. The other word for correction with with that proper spirit, the, the kindness to, to desire to build up instead of tearing down. And that is extremely important for someone who is a leader in, in Israel. But Saul was chosen by Elohim to bring the good news. So Saul had the qualities necessary to accomplish the task, which First Timothy goes deeply into details as to what an elder should carry. If faithful is the word, if anyone desires the office of an elder, he desires a good work. Therefore, an overseer must be up above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own <clears throat> household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive for if someone does not know how to manage his own household how will he then care for God's church he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up or conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil moreover he must be well fought by the outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil I didn't put the scripture here but those these are the details of the elders that they need to be, this needs to be on top of the fruits of the spirit that every common Israelite has to have. <clears throat> and I do, not, I do not have the fruit of the spirit scriptures up here, but look them up and you will see that that is what the common folks need to have. An elder has to go above, a step above that. He has to have self-control. He has to be respectable. He has to be sober-minded. He cannot be a drunkard. He cannot have violent tendencies. And he has to have his family under control. He has to be able to rule and, and be the headship of the house. If he can't do it at home, he's not going to be able to do it elsewhere. So the requirements of the leader is at home first. Get your household in order. If you really believe the Father has called you to be an elder or a headship of the congregation or be uh, in, in leadership, make sure that your house is in order and you're not doing you're not making sure that your t's are crossed and your i's are dotted just for the sake of being noticed you're doing it because it is a commandment of the father and you want to be righteous before the eyes of god and by doing so then you apply it at home automatically you're going to be noticed because your desire is to have your house in order your desire is for your children to walk in torah your desire is for your children to be men and women of God that they can then pass this down to the next generation. And by so doing, then the Father will elevate you because 
Your desire is not to do it so that you can be a leader. Your desire is to do it because you know that the generation is coming. This is our faith. It's passed down from father to son. Father to son. But they have to be perfectly trained. You cannot have an elder in your community who is not willing to be perfectly trained or have <clears throat> the necessary skills, the necessary knowledge of the Word of God to admonish the community. You can't correct somebody with your own standards because that's not the standards of God. It's your own standards. You're creating your own throne. You're creating your own empire. And we have plenty of that in this world. We don't need another. So you need to be perfectly trained. You have to have <clears throat> the proper standards in you so that you can then correct your friend or correct your brother or correct your sister or correct your children with the proper standards so that they can live, so they can have life. The character of Hashem has to be in you. That the, His character, His personality, His mercy, His compassion, His grace has to be in you so that you can then be a, a right ruler in the kingdom of God. Your focus of righteousness and ruling has to be righteous ruling and righteous teachings. It has to be the focus in your life. And you cannot be a respecter of men. You cannot fear men. You cannot fear or... or <clears throat> Will be a lover of money because the lover of money will respect men. You're going to give favorable judgment to the one who has the money or you will not give judgment because you're afraid that they are going to leave and take their benefits with them. We cannot be a respecter of men. <clears throat> if, good, if, if good men make mistakes, what do you think bad men will do if they, do, they, they make mistakes? It's for them, it's not mistakes, they're doing it on purpose. Now we're going to go ahead and, re and go into this last statement. If good men make mistakes, bad men do it on purpose. Torah reveals the people suffer when the leaders make bad choices. So if you're going to be an elder in a community or you're going to be chosen to be an elder and you, <coughs> Richard, picks, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> picks an elder that's not qualified and he makes a bad choice or he makes a mistake, his sheep is the one that's going to suffer, and we're going to see evidence of that. We're going to look at three elders or three leaders and their examples, but there are many, many more in the Bible, which I don't have time to go into. We're going to look at Saul and the Amalekites, King Amon. The transgression, what was it? He left him alive with the livestock. And the consequence of that, Haman rose out of the loins of Amon and tried to kill all the Jews in the Persian kingdom. So on purpose, he, uh, Saul... The king of Saul allowed Amon to live for a profit, for benefits, for a gain. And God said, Samuel was very specific, get rid of all of them. Everything's got to go. He was disobedient on purpose. By doing so, an, an enemy rose out of, that, out of that disobedience. So let's look at Saul and the sacrifice without Samuel. What was the transgression? Couldn't wait for Samuel to return, so he fired up the altar. What was the consequence? The people lost all of their weapons for battle, and Israel had no weapons to fight the enemy with. He did it on purpose. Samuel said, I'll be right back. But Saul said, oh, I can't wait for this guy. No, he ain't coming. I need to do this. And I know that if I sacrifice to God, he's going to answer me. So let's do this. Consequence. God took away all of their weapons, and the enemy rose against them. Let's look at David and Bathsheba. Transgression. Murdering the husband of Bathsheba. The consequence, life for life. But instead of David's life, it was for Uriah's life, it was the baby's life for Uriah. 
David didn't suffer. I mean, he suffered the loss of his son. But ultimately, life for life is what the is the consequence of murder in the Torah. So because David had a bigger call on his life, that consequence landed on his son and didn't land on him. David in the census. The transgression, counting the people for battle. That is not what it's for. The census is to elevate, to nassau his people. It has nothing to do with battle. So what was the consequence? A plague broke out in the midst of the people and thousands died because David counted his people to go into war. Was that a mistake? Yep. Was it intentional? That actually was not an intentional sin. He, his, his actually, no, take it back because his buddy... Yoav came and said, why are you doing this? Why are you counting these people? You know we're not supposed to. And David said, trust me, we're going to do this. He had, the people died. David's choice, the people died. David and the ark and the cart. If you remember the story, the transgression, the ark was being transported to Jerusalem via cart. Ark is to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. The burden is on man, not on ox and truck. So what happened? The consequence, ox tripped. Tipping the ark, Uzzah reached out, touched to save it, and burned up. So if we do not, are not careful as to who we are picking, we're going to, the people are the one that gets the consequence. Let's look at Solomon and the 300 wives and the 700 concubines. For the sake of peace, Solomon married his enemy's daughters. What's the Torah? You are not to have more than one wife. That is the commandment. Well, God understood the, the hearts of men. But the king is not allowed to have more than one wife specifically. Specifically. So, what happens here? His wisdom got a better of him. And they brought idolatry to the land. And the huge problems of Israel begins. So, because you have 300, 1,000 women in your home. They're bringing their idols, they're bringing their culture, they're bringing their form of worship, they're bringing their, their things to feel at home. It's invading the land. So what happens? The people of Israel are exposed and they're worshiping just like Zimbri and Cosby. So now, what is the point to all this? First, the leader with huge transgression, but with the right state of heart and the character of Hashem in him and the qualities the qualifications to be a righteous ruler, it's still David. That's the one leader that, we have brought, that I have brought up here. That even with a righteous king, you can still have at mistakes. Even with the one righteous uh, leader, there's still going to be consequences if that leader goes the wrong direction. And I'm thinking of the battle with uh, the general, General Custard. They all went the wrong. They were following a blind man. We're going to go. We're going to win. And they all got annihilated. One bad leader will take you to your death. But if you, even with a good leader, you still will have consequences. The two wicked leaders that I mentioned, which was Saul and Solomon at that time, <clears throat> with huge transgressions, but they didn't have the qualifications to be king. Why didn't Saul have the qualifications? Because the heart of the people were in the wrong place. So God gave them the wrong king and led them to it. But why David? David still, he was the anointed of God, but he still made mistakes. This is teaching us that we're not without fault. That we are not without cause making mistakes. That is the whole point. That when you're picking elders, it is extremely important. The qualifications and who you are picking. 
So they are, these were kings of Israel, not elders. But it still is the same point. All three of them were, or God ordained them. God anointed them to be kings of the land. But the elders, God still give, has given us the authority or the permission to raise or to have elders in the community. And for us, we have to be extremely careful of who we are picking to be elders. Because elders make bad judgment calls and people will suffer from those consequences. We, it's extremely important for the sake of the souls of the sheep that we are picking the proper elders and the proper judges so that the people will walk in, their cover, in the covering of righteousness and there won't be plagues breaking out. The elders, the leaders in the wrong, in the wrong direction that leads the people in the wrong direction, the people suffer the consequences. So we have to be extremely careful of why we pick because if they're going in the wrong direction or they're giving bad judgment calls, the people are going to suffer. So extremely important is to choose a leader with the qualities. <clears throat> the life of the people depend on it. If not, their natural physical life. If, it, if it's not their natural physical life, let's per se, okay, we pick the wrong elders. They're literally not going to physically die, but there could be physical effects. There could be spiritual effects. There could be spiritual death. We can be pushing them away or sending them in the wrong direction. And it lays in the hands of the elders. It is extremely important that we take that very serious. They need to be ready for the calling. They need to be ready for the, for the stress. They need to be ready for, the, for the, yes. the burden that comes upon the elders because it is the spiritual life of the, of the people. And they need to be perfectly trained. We have, we have doctrine that we've been given from before. And if we come to the Torah and we were not born with the birth with the with this teaching we need to be perfectly untrained from the past and trained for the for the right judgments to be given so the elder has to be perfectly trained and i can't stress that enough mistakes do happen and will be made but the consequences of those bad choices or decisions or decisions is weightier for the elder than it is for the common folk of israel so if the Father is really urging you to be an elder, or you really believe this is your calling, you need to really analyze, count the cost, look within yourself. Are you taking that? Do you have that intimate relationship with the Father? Is, one, is the first question. Are you intimately connected with the Creator whose judgments that you're going to be endorsing? You need to have that relationship. It's like saying... <clears throat> Alejandro is the, the head of the House of Cortez, but he has no relationship with the one who set the rules. And he has no idea what the heart of his father really truly is. So he's just shooting out commands without having the essence behind those commands or the purpose behind those commands, which is to give life and not just a do's and don'ts. It's the essence of having life. So if you do not have an intimate relationship with the Creator and you want to be an elder, we're not, you don't qualify because it's not about do's and don'ts. It's about giving life to the person who's in front of you seeking wisdom, seeking direction, seeking judgment, seeking righteousness. And if you don't have that relationship with the Creator, then you cannot pass that to the sheep in front of you. You're only going to pass a bunch of do's and don'ts and follow this and follow that and in essence, it'll be another state of religion. And that's your half Torah for today. Oh, yeah. Wow.
Yeah. 